Over the years as a pastor, I have written probably thousands of sermons. Um, I've always manuscripted my messages. I have a manuscript here. I read this to you. So um, a lot of reasons for that. But part of it is that writing makes me a little more precise and exact, keeps me on track. There were also countless other things that I had to write, letters and, and, and emails and lessons and ministry proposals and an occasional poem and just all kinds of things. I was always writing. And one of the most difficult things for me in writing is to end it. How do you end it well? We are at this, in this series about finishing strong, finishing faithful in Second Peter. And we are finishing Second Peter and I thought of that as how it is, how do we end this? How did Peter end it? It's not just a matter of knowing when to stop because some preachers lack what they call a terminal facility. Um, my homiletic prof told us that when you're done, quit all over the place. It's not knowing when to stop, it's knowing how to stop. How do you end it? Endings matter. Without good endings, novels leave you hanging. You ever read a novel that you got to the end and thought, wait a minute, it's not done yet. <laughs> Editorials like memorable summary conclusions. Sermons fail to answer the so what question. You've got a lot of data. It's kind of a data dump, but no ending. And we're at the end of the Apostle Peter's last letter in the last chapter, in the last verses. In chapter 1, Peter said, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Peter writes knowing that he's about to die. He's going to be martyred. He's going to be offered <laughs> as a martyr at, at the hand of Nero. And his life is going to be taken cruelly for the sake of the gospel. And now he's us his final thoughts to those he's loved and served. And, and in our journey through it, we've, we've come to the last lines of the last letter. And Peter's ending not only his little letter, but he's ending his life's work. And it's a good ending. In the verses that were read to you earlier, Peter works his way backwards through the letter in many respects with a series of four significant imperatives. They, they are in encouraging his readers and us with answers to the so what questions. In light of all of these things, how then should we live? And because preachers do this sort of thing, I've, I've kind of given them to you in four B statements. Peter says, be diligent, be discerning, be careful, and be groaning. So that's the whole outline. Everything else is commentary. He says in verse 14, as soon as I can turn this page, be diligent. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Since you're waiting for these, what's these? <laughs> well, it's found in the verses that were just before that. Peter says, since all these things, the heavens and the earth, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in all 
in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're waiting for, the new heavens and the new earth. It's the great day when Jesus makes all things new, when everything that's wrong and broken and ruined by the fall is undone and redone, and the world is transformed. The world and everything in it, this world and everything in it, will have been destroyed, dissolved, burned up, renovated from the ground up, and Peter uses frightening apocalyptic imagery. Can you imagine what that might look like? If somebody made a movie out of this, what would the end of the world look like? Peter says the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are d done in it will be exposed. They're going to be found out for what they really are. They're going to be laid bare. That's scary stuff. That's what's coming in God's program. But then God makes all things new. And the Apostle John in the book of Revelation described it this way, I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne is saying, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what we're waiting for. A thoroughly renovated cosmos in which righteousness dwells. And all is put right. And as the old gospel song says, we're going to be put right too. Then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now nor could be soon shall be our own. And Peter assumes that these believers have focused their hopes and aspirations not on this world as it is, but in the world that's coming when God makes all things new. It is to hope-filled Christians, Peter says, be diligent. And that's important because Christians who are flirting with this world and enamored with all it has to offer are not going to be much impressed with calls to being diligent, to be found spotless and without blemish when Christ comes. That's going to feel oppressive a burden, burdensome exercise in religious piety. Not a hope-filled, real-time pursuit now of the holiness we will enjoy forever then. Since you are waiting for these, assuming that you are indeed waiting for these, then be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We don't pick it up as easily on our English translation, but Peter has used those same words almost in the previous chapter when he, when he talks about the false teachers, and this is a deliberate contrast with them because Peter, when he warned about them in chapter 2, verse 13, said they are, they are blots and blemishes. 
reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. And he used two Greek words there, spiloi and momoi. Uh, aren't you glad you came to church so you know a little bit of Greek this morning? <laughs> spiloi and momoi, spots and blemishes. Okay, just in case, thank you. You get old and your voice gets tired. Spots and blemishes. But then he says, though to those anticipating the day of Christ, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Aspiloi and amometa. When we add an A to our words, it turns them around, doesn't it? For instance, we have the word muse. What does it mean to muse? It means to think, to ponder. Put an A in front of it, and what do you have? Amuse means don't think. <laughs> have fun. These false teachers were blots and blemishes. And Paul or Peter says to these believers, make sure that you are aspiloi, not spotted, not blemished, not having moral impurity on the ledger of your life, stainless and blameless. In his first epistle, the Apostle Paul said something similar. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be or what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we're going to see him like he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's the same thing. Since we're waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by Christ when he comes without spot or blemish and at peace. And the peace that Peter urges is twofold. First of all, it's the peace of God that quiets our souls in trying times. Remember that Peter's readers were suffering from serious persecution, some of them so severe that they were called fiery trials, and with his own life about to be brutally terminated by the order of Nero, Peter knew he was going to die. He knew that was on the horizon. He says, be diligent to found it, be found at peace. The peace of God. He knows what he's talking about. The peace that quiets our heart with hope. But he's also calling us to peace with one another, I think. We have an amazing shared future in front of us. And all this stuff around us it's all going to burn. So don't sweat the small stuff. The old world will no longer exist. A new world's coming, so make every effort to be found by Christ that is coming spotless and blameless and at peace. And then Peter says, be discerning. Be discerning. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Reckon the patience of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, and we'll come back to that. How many times have you prayed, Father, wouldn't this be a good time for Jesus to return? You ever prayed that? Yeah, many, many times. More recently, I think. This new century has come in with an incredible uptick in violence. America's been at war since 2001, since 9-11. We just recently pulled out of Afghanistan, pretty much. But the wars go on. 
Russia's just invaded Ukraine. That's filled our news feeds and everything else. There's been a threat of nuclear war, and, you know, it just kind of raises all of our anxieties. Wouldn't it be a good time, Lord, for Jesus to come back? Why does God stay his hand? That's a, that's a question every Christian has asked. Wouldn't it be a good time for the Prince of Peace to rule the nations with a rod of iron, to bring to pass what the song Joy to the World says, he who rules the world with truth and grace instead of animosity and fear and wars and all that other stuff. Peter has already explained that God is not slow to fulfill his promise. Patience is not procrastination. God's delay, his patience is salvific. Why? Because he's extending everyone everywhere the opportunity to repent. I am so thankful that God didn't decide to set the heavens on fire and dissolve the cosmos on August 1st, 1966. You know why? Because it was a week later that I accepted Christ, that God called me to himself. His patience gave me the chance to be born again. And God is holding out long, restraining his anger, his judgment to give more and more people the opportunity to trust Christ. So Peter calls us to discernment. We wait in hope for that great day. We long for his return. We diligently pursue holiness, and we rejoice that God's patience is providing more opportunities for men and women to hear the gospel and to be rescued from eternal destruction. Who do you know who would be lost forever if God dropped the curtain on eternity today? Maybe you're sitting here today, and that would be you. That day is coming. Christ will come back. We need to be prepared for that. The Apostle Paul said, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, to repentance? God's kindness is evidenced by his patience, is designed to bring us to repentance and faith in Christ. It's a gracious restraint on God's part. So be discerning and reckon God's patience not as procrastination, but as salvation. And then Peter adds this aside about Paul's writings. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom God or given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, and all God's people said amen, right? <laughs> there are some things that Paul said that are hard to understand, which the ignorant, the untrained, the unlearned, the unschooled, and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. It's encouraging that Peter, the leader of the apostolic band, found that Paul had things that he didn't get, he didn't understand. Those hard-to-understand bits that, that false teachers take and twist and use to develop their heresies. Heresy characteristically arises from those who torturously distort parts of the Scripture that are not crystal clear. But note the phrase, as they do the other Scriptures. What has Peter said? 
that in Peter's mind, what Paul is writing is Holy Scripture. It's inspired speech. That these apostles knew when they were writing these things that they were adding to the canon of the Bible. They were giving us authoritative words from God. They were writing Holy Scripture. But to his point, be discerning. Reckon God's patience as salvation. Be thankful that God didn't end all things the day before you accepted Christ. And then he says, be careful. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Peter spent the whole of chapter 2 warning against these, these false teachers who come in bringing destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. They exist, and their voices are many. Pastor Ken has been so careful to teach us that. They're dangerous because many of them possess a charming uh, charisma. They're attractive. They're winsome. They speak well. They're eloquent, persuasive, and popular, and they stroke all of our cultural anxieties. It's no wonder that people are drawn to them. But what they're teaching is destabilizing spiritually. They proclaim a sanitized Jesus void of his exclusive claims and, and eviscerate his command to love by making it some kind of a generic feel-good suggestion. And some of them deny the resurrection altogether. They deny the deity of Christ, that Christ was anything more than a, a good teacher, a wise man. A big idea today among self-described progressive Christians is the idea of deconstructing your faith. If you haven't heard about that, you should acquaint yourself with it. Uh, deconstruction can refer to a healthy sorting of our beliefs, examining them carefully and discarding those that are not true. Wise Christians, discerning Christians do that regularly. They take what is taught and say, through the filter of the Word of God and say, is that what God really said? I remember when I was a little kid, I thought that when Adam fell, he became Satan. I don't know where I picked that up. It probably wasn't from Sunday school. But I thought, you know, when Adam, when Adam sinned, he became Satan, and that's who Satan is. That wasn't true. I had to deconstruct that false notion with truth from the Word of God. Many progressives take that necessary work that we do of, of, of being careful to understand the scriptures, they take it a step fur further. And Alyssa Childers in, in a Gospel Coalition web, webcast explained it this way. I, I think typically in our culture, deconstruction is more understood as sort of being undergirded by relativism. There's sort of this fundamental assumption that the objective truth does not really exist. So it's our job as an enlightened, mature Christian to deconstruct the construct of faith that we grew up with, and ultimately the purpose of that is to live our own truth. You understand what she said? That we come to the Scriptures, and, and we have to sort it out for ourselves what we believe they mean for us so that we can bring our own truth 
And so the hard things that the Bible says about holiness and purity and, and morality and, and sexuality and all those other things in marriage are recast as quaint cultural artifacts, no longer relevant, no longer applicable to modern sensibilities. Christ is no longer the way, the truth, and the life, but a way, a truth, and a life. And many of those who engaged in deconstructing their faith have gone the whole way and de deconverted from their faith. How many of you read deconversion stories from people who stood up at one time for Christ, popular people, and then turned their back on and said, I no longer believe? It's because they deconstructed their faith and they de deconstructed it right out of the faith. And sadly, I've known young people in this church who have gone the way of deconstruction that way and no longer believe some of the things that the Bible clearly teaches. So be careful. Be careful, Peter urges. Don't get suckered by anyone who might lead you away from your firm foundation in Jesus Christ. Don't listen to anyone who sanctifies sin and makes a virtue of what is shameful, who makes wrong right and right wrong. Forewarned is forearmed, Peter says. I forewarned you. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And then he says, be growing, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Literally, keep on growing. Keep on growing. That's Peter's intent. Keep after it. Keep augmenting your appreciation of grace and your grasp of Jesus. What does it mean to grow in grace? I think it can refer to two related gifts from God. The first, of course, is the gift of salvation. For by grace you have been saved. We know that. That's what first comes to our mind. It's the freely given utterly undeserved gift of forgiveness and pardon and eternal life and holiness and hope that God has given to us. Keep growing in your understanding of what God has done for you on the cross where Jesus absorbed all of your guilt and punishment and set you free from condemnation and death. Keep growing in that. Keep being amazed by grace. Never stop. But grace is also used to describe what God gives us in order to live as we ought. It's the desire and the ability to do the will of God, the want to and the can do that makes the difference in our desire to be obedient. For instance, spiritual gifts are described as graces from God. The word grace in the New Testament is charisma, and spiritual gifts are called charismata, graces, enablements that help us find ways that we can serve the body of Christ and serve one another that come from God. Keep growing in that grace. Paul could say that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Grace is something that enables us to live the life that God wants us to live, which is really important because by myself, do that. I really can't. Paul talked about his challenge in Romans 7 about what he wanted to do and what he wanted, how he wanted to obey God. And I, he said, I got two things fighting inside of me. The good that I want to do, I don't the stuff I want to do. And my mic is cutting in and out. 
Yeah, well, we'll work with it. I was telling the they they warned me that this might happen. And no. Uh, yeah. Hebrews. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So growing in grace is another way of, of encouraging us to a deepening engagement of our walk with faith, regularly reminding ourselves of God's saving grace and of God's enabling grace by which we can live and follow Christ. And then he says, keep on growing in your knowledge of Jesus. That means knowing more about him so that we can know him better. Not just amassing facts. Paul put it this way. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from my own efforts to obey God and please God. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. How many of you rode a bicycle when you were a kid? Most of you. You ever, you ever try and stop the bicycle and balance on it without putting your feet down? You ever do that? What happened? You had to put your feet down or you fell over, right? Yeah, I remember one time I, I had just gotten a, some, some toe clips for my, for my mountain bike and I rode up in the backyard and the family was all there and I, I stopped and I couldn't get my toes out of the clip and I just fell over. Bicycles are not meant to be stationary. You keep moving or you fall off. And Christian life is the same thing. You're not meant to stop. You keep going, you keep growing, or you fall off. We're most stable when we're moving forward and growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, going deeper in our appreciation and appropriation of grace growing in our intimate understanding of Jesus and knowing Jesus, when we stop moving, when we stop that, you don't just stand in place. You go backwards. Remember Paul, when he started his sermon, his, his, his letter, he said, God has given us these incredible promises that by these may become partakers of the divine nature. And then he talks about all these virtues that he says, be diligent to add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and all those other things. And he says, if you do this and if you keep on doing this, you will never fall. That's what he's saying here. Keep on growing. Keep on doing that. Be diligent. Let hope fuel a lifelong desire to be found by Christ, stainless and blameless. Be discerning. God's patience isn't procrastination, it's salvation. Be careful. Don't let the charm of false teachers destabilize your faith and be growing. Take a deep dive into grace and get to know Jesus better. In chapter 1 of this letter, Peter described a time when he and James and John went up on a mountain with Jesus Christ. And, and they were kind of sleepy and half dozing, and all of a sudden they kind of woke up to the fact that something incredible was happening. 
Jesus had changed. His face shone like the sun. His clothes were, were so white, they defied description, whiter than any human cleaner could clean them. They were just glowing, radiantly white. And Moses and Elijah appears with him, and they're having a conversation about his coming death and resurrection. And Peter remembered being enveloped by a cloud of, of, of glory and hearing God's voice declare his delight in his son, Jesus. He caught a glimpse of Christ's eternal glory, and that stuck with him all his life. And so as he draws his letter to a conclusion, he said to him, to Jesus Christ, be the glory both now until the day of eternity. It's a doxology. What a great way to end, to wrap up his life's work. All glory be to Christ. Sing with me. The words are new, but you know the tune. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive.
To him be the glory both now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. God bless you.